Sam. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You speak beautiful English, and I have a personal request today. If you could just speak a little louder, or maybe not even just a little louder, but a little bit slower than usual, because the hearing in my right ear just disappeared all of a sudden while I was watching the first day of the ICJ hearings at The Hague. Well, let me say this very slowly for you. You lost your hearing. I went blind. So we'll, we'll make it work together. Hi, and welcome to October 7th Emotionally Raw Coverage from Door Comet and me, Amy Sapan. Today's episode is brought to us by Zahav Jewelry with 1L. Today's January 21st. It's the 107th day of the war. And joining us is Samuel Hyde. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sam is a writer and researcher based in Israel who began his career in the history department of contemporary anti-Semitism at the Cape Town Holocaust and Genocide Center. He is known for his editorial work on former Knesset member Dr. Anat Wolf's latest book, We Should All Be Zionists. Samuel has worked at various think tanks and research institutes across Israel, South Africa, and the United States, including the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the Institute for Monitoring Peace and Cultural Tolerance. Currently a fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute and a writer at UN Watch. His work focuses on topics that range across Israel's political climate, anti-Semitism, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and extremism in the education sector. He is frequently published in Newsweek, Haaretz, Fathom Journal, The Jerusalem Report, The Sun, and The Jewish Journal. And he's a guest speaker at various institutions and news channels. Sam, I'm so excited to have you here with us today. You write about the lay of the land with such a broad perspective, and there is a common thread running through everything, weaving it together. And that's the power of your conviction, the thoroughness of your research, and your bold, dare I say, snarky tone. Before we get into everything today, listeners, there's really so much to get into here, and we're going to just do this piecemeal and broadly. I highly recommend you subscribe to Sam's Substack, Israel From Within, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. In an interview with The Sun in late December, you were relating to the bizarre claim made that Jesus was Palestinian and the nativity displays of Palestinian rallies. And you wrote a lot of like really, really smart stuff. And then at the end of it, you said, it's really just bizarre, rather dumb. And frankly, the whole thing is just boring to me at this point. It's been almost a month and we, we're edging closer to the four month mark. I'm grateful to you for joining us today. And I'm sorry to be boring you with all of this. Don't worry. I don't think we're going to have that problem today. <laughs> so before we jump into like nitty, 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 let's just think about this broadly for a second, if you will. What do you think lies at the heart of this conflict? Well, that's obviously a big question, but I'm, I'm happy to start there. Look, I think that the, uh, the conflict can be viewed in it's multidimensional. Firstly, it's not just a national territorial conflict, but 
there's something that is often less spoken about, and it's the way in which the two peoples view the conflict, the difference in the way in which the two peoples view the conflict. If you speak to most Israelis, they'll tell you that they view the conflict as a struggle between two national movements, the Jewish national movement Zionism and the Palestinian national project, part of essentially the broader Arab national movement. This is true, by the way, even for people like Bezalel Smotrich, who he wrote a piece in 2017 called Israel's... I have the Tzofar app on my phone, and if your phone's not on silent, then it rings no matter where the siren's going on in the country. I'm sorry, I put... That's fine. It's all part of the process, right? We are in the middle of a war, I suppose. Sorry for that cutting your train of thought. No, that's fine. I mean, I can try. I can I can pick up. Basically, what I was saying is Bezalel Smotrich, who's obviously this messianic lunatic, um, wrote a piece in 2017 called Israel's Decisive Plan. And even he acknowledges that it's a struggle between two national movements because he says in it, there is no space for two national projects within the territory between the river and the sea. So pretty much everyone in Israel, whether you're on the left or the right, views us as a struggle between two national movements, whether you're interested in resolution or not interested in resolution. The Palestinians, though, view it actually completely different. It's very, very obvious from documentation, from statements, from the peace process, from the marches and the chants. The Palestinians don't view this conflict as a struggle between two national movements, but a conflict between one national movement, a legitimate national movement, the Palestinian, and a colonial and imperialist entity, Israel. That makes it incredibly intraceable because it de facto comes with the acknowledgement that Israel is not a legitimate national entity. That's the first thing I'd say. All of this relates, as I've said, to the way in which the two peoples view the conflict. The second thing is, as I mentioned in the beginning, that the conflict is multidimensional, meaning it's not just territorial, it's not just national, it's not just religious. It's got all these different components, which actually don't make it unique. This is similar for Yugoslavia, for Bosnia, you know, connection to holy sites. There's, there's all of that stuff. But if you really had to sum it up for Israel, it would predominantly out of the multidimensionality, it would be national territorial. My fear, actually, is that for the Palestinians, it's actually got the religious dimension of it is far deeper. Whether that is overtly expressed or not, you can trace this back already to 1948. Many, many uh, leaders in the Arab world were expressing the 1948 war as a war of jihad against the Jews. Uh, October 7th showed that again to some degree. No one was saying the occupiers or the settlers. But there was Alu Akbar, there was, uh, I, I just uh, killed 10 Jews with my bare hands. So I would say that that's a, that's a difference. That I think the religious dimension, we have it on our side as well, by the way, We're predominantly with the settler move, if you want to put it down to that. But again, that's also got a territorial element to it, where I think it's kind of very like esoteric with the Palestinians uh, in, in that capacity. The other thing is the different way in which the people engaged in resolution talk about resolution. When Israelis are talking about resolving the conflict with the Palestinians, more often than not, they're talking about the concept of peace, where the Palestinians, when they're talking with Israelis about resolution, are more often than not talking about justice. Now, what is the problem with the latter? The problem with the latter is that when people seek justice, what they're actually seeking is absolute justice. And absolute justice doesn't exist. It's a false perception of reality. And when you essentially chase this false perception, 
of total and absolute justice, you're never willing to make concessions or compromises, which is precisely what is actually required for peace. The last thing I'd say, which goes to that point as well, is when you go, you know, the Israeli left essentially upon the collapse of the peace process in the 2000s, didn't replace its political program with something pragmatic that took into account, still focused on peace with the Palestinians in the regional world and national security. It kind of collapsed itself into the social program. And part of that was instead of looking at political solutions that were pragmatic, it started off by engaging essentially in this endless litany of narrative exchange programs between people on the ground, which in my opinion have proven to be useless because none of them are having the same conversation. And what I mean by this is when Israelis are talking about the occupation, whether it's ending the occupation, whether it's uh, the system of occupation, they usually are referring to, for the most part, the military rule over the territories acquired by Israel as a result of the 1967 war. That would uh, be the West Bank and Gaza up until 2005 before we withdrew. The Palestinians, however, when they speak about the occupation, even in these dialogue groups, are not referring to the military rule. Perhaps some are, and in instances and events when they're referring to the military and whatever, yes, they're speaking about that. But the Palestinians, in line with everything else I've said, view the occupation as from the river to the sea. The mere existence of Israel is an occupation, an occupying force, which is, again, easily detectable in various statements and policies and proposals that that the Palestinian leadership and society have put forth. And the other one would be the two-state solution. Right now, this is this is interesting. This is probably the most interesting dynamic of of cross conversation. When Israelis speak about the two state solution and the international community, by the way, they're usually talking about it based on a principle of two states for two peoples, meaning a Jewish state next to an Arab state, the state of Israel next to the state of Palestine. But when the Palestinians speak of it, they've never actually mentioned two states for two peoples. When you look at the collapse of the peace process, all the two-state solutions would have ended in a state of Israel next to a state of Palestine, a Jewish state next to an Arab state, thereby ending the occupation, control for the Palestinians over East Jerusalem, no settlements in the state of Palestine. All these things that we are repeatedly told are the core issues, all would have been solved in various degrees depending on the peace accords, whether it was Camp David, Taba, Camp David II. They were all rejected based on the principle uh, which I believe to be at the heart of this conflict, which is called the right of return, where the Palestinians demand that all 6 million refugees, most of which are not refugees, return not to the West Bank and Gaza, because that's where most of them already live, but into sovereign Israel itself, into where Israel's sovereign territory exists, would essentially turn the Jews into minority, meaning that one could make the argument, I think quite fairly, that Arafat and Abbas might have signed on to the idea of a two-state solution at Oslo, but the only two-state solution they've really seen is an Arab-majority state in the West Bank and Gaza and an Arab-majority state where Israel exists today. Oh! He's never done that, by the way. Like, I, like, he's never, like, he's been, like... Yeah, okay, okay, like, Nick. I've never seen him react that way. Whoa! You just, like, doors, like, excited. Whoa! <laughs> Consider this trajectory as an example. Konstantin Zurek, a prominent and influential Syrian Arab intellectual who coined the term Nakba, 
wrote the following explanation in the opening paragraph of his booklet, The Meaning of Disaster. Quote, seven Arab states declare war in an attempt to subdue Zionism, then stop impotent before it and return on their heels. The defeat of the Arabs in Palestine is not a small setback or a transient evil, but it is an unequivocal catastrophe, end quote. According to Zurich himself, the Nakba is the failure of the Arab armies to defeat the newly established Jewish state. Now consider the popular usage of the word today to depict some Western outpost arriving in the Middle East with the goal of expelling indigenous peoples to establish an ethnic supremacist state of which the Palestinians are subdued to a role of the blameless and hailed as righteous. Sam, how do you think this transition came about in terms of the original definition or the original origins of Nakba and where we are today? Well, that is obviously the first example of where, where this starts. It comes 1947, 1948. But this is actually a, a repeated pattern that you see. Right, so I want to give you an example. I think if you look at four major events throughout this conflict, it will become clearer. Uh, 47 and 48, 67, 2000, which is the Intifada, and 2023. In all of these events, there's an initiation of Arab aggression, or Palestinian Arab aggression, accompanied by celebratory triumphalism whether it's the defeat of the Jewish state or that the Jewish state is near its ending. And upon the military defeat or upon something that looks like it's about to become a military defeat, there's this notion of ex not, not looking at essentially the problem and reflecting on one's role, but essentially all the celebratory triumphalism, all the initiations of aggression singularly disappear and the consequences of this war are seen almost as a decree of fate or a natural disaster rather than consequences for political decisions that leadership are responsible for. This has created an ongoing narrative of victim, righteous victimization. And righteous victimization relies in and of itself on one not being responsible or to blame for any part of a conflict between two belligerents, which is what this is. So essentially, if you look at how that transition happened in 47, 48 with the Nakba, it's the same with the Six-Day War, right? Rather than there being for weeks up into the Six-Day War, there were Palestinian and Arab world declarations of how the end of Israel was near and they were going to reverse the outcome of the war in 1948 and uh, Israel was going to be wiped off the map. And upon the defeat of the Arab armies, all of that was forgotten and it became a narrative solely of occupation. Now, there is an occupation, but it became a narrative of solely occupation. While a narrative of the Nakba, it came a narrative of solely displacement where everything, all the declarations of eradicating or preventing the establishment of a Jewish state and opening war against the Yeshuv, pre, the British uh, mandate Jewish community, all of that's forgotten. Same thing is in, in the second intifada. What happens? The Palestinians, essentially, Arafat walks away from the, the deal. You could say there's a negotiating tactic, nothing really special about, you know, the Palestinians walking away from a peace deal, 
Surprisingly, they're not the worst offenders of that. What is unique about the Palestinians, however, is that at the time of rejecting the peace deal, there was absolutely no warning of what consequences of rejecting a peace deal could be. There was no mobilization of opposition. Okay, And by the very parties who saw rejecting this peace deal, which, by the way, would have brought an end to the occupation, the military rule in the West Bank, as, and I quote, a sense of victory, waged the Second Intifada within weeks of rejecting that peace accord, and then turn the story of the Second Intifada, not one of an initiation of aggression with celebratory triumphalism as if the end of the Jewish state is near, but as resistance to the very occupation that, as I said, could have come to an end with the peace accord just weeks before. 2023, you saw the same thing, an initiation of aggression, mass celebration on the streets. And upon the outcome of what we see in Gaza, there's still broad support in the polls conducted by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research. 72% of Palestinians, despite the consequences of this war, support October 7th. And yet view the outcome of October 7th as some natural disaster, a decree of fate that has fallen upon them, rather than seeing it as the actions for which their leadership mobilized all their abilities, their capabilities, their resources, their developments, in order to commit that atrocity on, the, on October 7th, which was obviously going to start a war, rather than seeing it that way and undergoing a period of self-reflection, which is necessary in order to, to create a more constructive goal, once again, it's all a natural disaster. And I'm very interested to see essentially what the narrative will come out of this. It, it likely looks like it's genocide, apparently. It just keeps getting worse, essentially, each time. It's only displacement. It's only occupation. It's only resistance to occupation. It's genocide. The ante keeps upping because people keep letting them get away with it, essentially, of manipulating historical realities. Speaking of genocide, what do you think the South African government's motivations may have been with respect to the lawsuit at the International Court of Justice? Um, well, I'd say let's firstly get off the table that it's about morality or set of values. Uh, that would be disingenuous, granted that South Africa has been shilling for the Russian war and the invasion, uh, and that they're essentially engaged in a foreign policy love affair with the Iranian regime, which has increased uh, over the last 20 years. Here's something that's very interesting. I was going to be writing an expose with a friend of mine who's an investigative journalist in South Africa. I decided to pull my name from it. I'm happy to talk about it on this podcast and media in Israel and the States because essentially I have family in South Africa. I'd like to be able to go and see them. And um, there's ever-growing threats against people who are outspoken uh, in, in the regard in which I am from Palestinian groups about citizens' arrests, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so I decided to not write, put my name to that. But here's something we found interesting. A few months before the uh, October 7th attack, the ANC party, which is the leading, the ruling party in South Africa, filed for bankruptcy. According to the South African Constitution, 
a party cannot run for elections if they're bankrupt. The elections are coming up in a few months. Post-October 7th, in fact, on the day of October 7th, the government released a statement, the South African government, which blamed the entire massacre. This was, this was before Israel had even stepped a toe into Gaza on Israel. Within three days into Israel's operation in Gaza, a specific parliamentarian who I'd had many debates with myself uh, invoked the term Palestinian Holocaust in the parliament. And, you know, the ANC did what most South African politicians do. They just nod their head as if this genius had invented something. But in truth, it's ideological origins of the Zionists are committing genocide against the Palestinians come from a Soviet pamphlet in um, something called Novosti, which was published in 1984, where they mention um, uh, Israeli or Zionist genocide against the Palestinians 300 times in 76 pages. The Soviets first, who were very aligned with the ANC, the Soviets funded the ANC. And certain members in the ANC have continuously actually invoked Novosti pamphlet. So that's important to remember. It's ideological. But now back on the point of the financial situation is that they also hosted post-October 7th, the Hamas delegation to South Africa. And there's a Hamas offices in Cape Town. In fact, when I was living in Cape Town, it was about a 10 minute walk from my house. I've seen it with my own eyes multiple times. The other thing is that Naledi Pandor, who's the international relations minister and who holds quite a lot of power in the country, met with President Raisi from Iran. And there was a massive trade investment that went through after this meeting between Iran and South Africa. And a week later, South Africa filed the ICJ hearing and pulled their uh, filing for bankruptcy. So now they can run in the election. Now, if people think that this is far-fetched, then it's because they don't know who the ANC is and what they've done in South Africa over the last 15 years. This is the same party whose last president stole 42 billion rand of taxpayers' money and basically got away with it. This is the same ANC whose health minister stole 150 million rand in the first three months directly out of the COVID fund. So this shouldn't be shocking to anyone familiar with South African politics. They're increasingly corrupt. They got no moral value. They show for Russia. They show for the Iranian regime. They've been um, supplying nuclear enrichment to Iran for a very long time now. This is not, it shouldn't be news to anyone. So it's got nothing to do really with the Palestinians. It's more of a Soviet ideological undertaking, a foreign policy love affair with Iran and Russia, and then financial corruption behind it. Speaking of the geopolitical web, if I may, many people think this has nothing to do with religion, coming back to the current war here, but rather look at the fact that there was a lot of progress being made on the normalizing ties with Saudi Arabia fronts. And they point to that and they say, well, this war has nothing to do with religion. This has everything to do with a sort of remapping of regional alliances. Could you speak to that a bit? Well, I think it's in part true, but I don't think the one negates the other. I'll explain what I mean in the sense of 
there's no doubt that Hamas's attack in part, in part, I wouldn't say that was the, the core motivation, but in part was to foil a Saudi-Israel peace deal that was, by the way, set to come with probably significant concessions to the Palestinians and a reignition of the Palestinian peace process. So anyone who thinks that Hamas should be left standing in Gaza after this war uh, is, in my opinion, an obstacle to peace in and of itself, because they just committed a massacre to foil a peace agreement. Uh, I mean, that should just be basic rationale, which seems to escape a lot of people. But on on, on the question of, of Saudi Arabia and Israel, of course, there's the geopolitical dynamic. Of course, after the Abraham Accords in 2020, Saudi signing a peace deal with Israel changes the entire region. It comes with concessions to the Palestinians. Uh, just to add to this, that's always been Netanyahu's failure as a leader. He might have been the one who was able to sign the Abraham Accords, but he's always viewed it as an opportunity to ignore the Palestinian issue, which is a huge, a huge problem in Israeli politics that has basically been a virus, essentially, in Israeli politics for the last decade under Netanyahu. But he used it as, as an opportunity to ignore the Palestinian problem. The Arab states, whether it was UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Saudi, used it as an opportunity as part of the Palestinian problem. And I think it would be very wise to get on the same page with them as that, because I think that the issue between Israel and the Palestinians can only be solved on a multilateral level, not on a bilateral level. There's too many regional players behind the scenes in this conflict to think that without a new regional dynamic, you can solve Israel-Palestine. But so that's the geopolitical angle of it in order to foil that. But there is a religious dimension to this because essentially the mere idea of Saudi Arabia, which in some capacity is the um, symbolic core of Islam to some degree, making peace with the Jewish state, meaning that to the enemies of Israel, this land of infidels essentially is recognized and is going nowhere. There's proxies and the Islamic Republic in Iran who very much have this hegemonic worldview of the Middle East, in which is an Islamic land. It's this Dar al-Islam, Dar al-Hab, and basically that Dar al-Islam is land that is belongs to Islam and that is ruled by Islam. And the latter is land that belongs to Islam, but land that is run by infidels. And that is Israel to them. So all of that plays into it. So I don't think that the one necessarily needs to cancel out the other. And that probably goes back into the religious dimension that is largely ignored. Today on Solid Gold, I want to speak about accent. I thought that... Liam and Noel Gallagher, this is like the coolest thing ever, you know? And afterward, I saw like Peaky Blinder and I thought this like handsome dude from whatever he is, uh, what is his name? Oh, the guy you like from Oppenheimer? Yeah, he's like have the, the best accent. Now I want to tell you, the gentleman that was here, this is the coolest accent. I know, I love the South African accents. When you, when you hear those like sexy, exotic accent, you feel like I wish I would born in another country or no? No, because I mean, 
I was born in Queens, New York, and I'm a queen. I can't really think of a better place to have been born. But when it comes to the Commonwealth countries, if we had to rank them, like between South African accents and Australian accents, the mm -hmm. British accent and the Canadian accent, South African accents, in my opinion, number one. You know what else is cool? Actually, I know, but uh, let's hear your opinion. Gold body jewelry for pierced and non-pierced bodies alike. Visit ZahavJewelry.com and check out a wide range of solid gold jewelry made by a family-owned business in the city where I'm from, New York. Use discount code DOOR24, that's D-O-R-24, for an additional 35% off your entire order. And with your first order, they'll even throw in a free pair of 14 karat gold earrings. No piercings? No problem. Oh, wee. Uh, yeah, the Gallagher twins. I like them. It's just not a rock and roll, mate. And then you can do John, Paul and George. They speak like they're from Liverpool. And then Harry Styles has this weird thing where he just sounds constantly drunk, right? I saw, watched an interview with him the other day. They, he was in that movie, Something Darlings. I can't remember what it was called. But they, they asked him, so like, tell me about the movie. And his response was, well, it's a movie. It's about, it's like a movie about a movie. How is this man in a movie? He can't, you know, like he can't speak, can he? <laughs> At the World Economic Forum in Davos this past week, in an interview on the main stage on Thursday, President Herzog said, quote, if you ask an average Israeli now about his or her mental state, nobody in his right mind is willing now to think about what will be the solution of the peace agreements because everyone wants to know can we be promised real safety in the future? Well, you seem very much to be in your right mind to me. So I'd like to ask you about the future, if I may. And there are lots of components to this, and I hope that we're able to hit on all of them in this last segment, very much looking forward. Let's start with ourselves. In Last Call for the Zionist Left, you and Blake Flayton wrote that, quote, if the Israeli left fails to seize this moment, it will find itself in the dustbin of history. Could you speak <laughs> a little bit to that? That was very dramatic. Um, yes, I, I actually do believe that. Um, I think that the Israeli, the Israeli left, after the peace process, largely collapsed its political program. Right? As I spoke about earlier, it became all about these narrative programs and social issues, women's rights, gay rights, all very important things. But actually, when you look at the polling, there's, there's a majority of Israelis who support abortion, who support gay rights, who support you know, women's rights and whatever, and we should still be working on those issues. Um, but there's no need to be more aggressive on that. It's not like we're in a regressive state on those issues. What the Israeli left has ignored is the national security issue, the, the peace process, and the Palestinian issue. It starts speaking about occupation and all this nonsense, essentially. It just uses talking points. Um, and basically what I'm saying is, you know, if you look at the changing landscape of the country, you're seeing something very interesting in the polling. You're seeing politically Israelis move away from the right and politically towards their left. That doesn't mean to the left. That means Likudniks are going to Gantz. 
some of those in Gantz are going to Laped. Uh, and and then what you're seeing though on the far left, Hadash, is a lot of people are going to what would be merits, let's put it that way, or to, to Laped. So you're moving, everyone is moving politically towards a center-left idea. But when you ask in the same poll, do they feel more left-wing or right-wing, they say they feel more right-wing. Why? Because the right-wing correctly and incorrectly, has been associated with security, with bitachon. So people are definitely the primary unifying factor between people, regardless of their religious observance or their the, what side of the political aisle they fall on. Post-October 7th, everyone wants security. That I think everyone can agree on. Better security. Okay? So Israelis feel more right-wing because psychologically – that's kind of been drilled into us, that the right wing are harsher on the Palestinians, better on security. That blew up, though, on October 7th in reality. But that doesn't take away the sentiment that right equals security. But moving towards left wing, because the right wing political program has failed miserably, because really there is no political program. When you really think about it, when you think of Netanyahu, Netanyahu made proclamations and never did anything. He never, ever did anything. Expanded settlements, never annexed the territory. Operations against Hamas, never full-scale war against Hamas. Like 2013, he prevented he prevented going. And so Netanyahu is a, actually a very conservative prime minister. That's what people miss about him. He's very conservative and very careful, careful to make peace, careful to go to war. But the reality of, of what I'm really saying is that the left needs to come to a place of reckoning with the Palestinian cause through that understanding that new um, developments are possible regionally in order to solve the conflict with the Palestinians or to make progress. They need to neglect their ideas that they've had. Some of these peace movements sound like they're still in 1991. And actually, you know, my fear about that is, because I, I I consider myself a liberal and of, I vote to the left, but I don't necessarily share the worldview on everything with the left, let me put it that way. But um, my, my grave concern is that with every failure of the peace process, Israelis move more to the right because usually it would very literally blow up in their faces. Now, the right wing is collapsing. Netanyahu is collapsing. Likud is in the polls consecutively at the lowest it's been in two decades. Smotrich is under the threshold. That's the far right. So the right and the far right are collapsing. The political programs are unsustainable. This is an opportunity for the left. But in order for the left to be successful, they'll need to not ignore the Palestinian issue, and in not ignoring it, recognize what rests at the core of this conflict. In doing so, be able to see new avenues that don't rely on a 1991 paradigm and worldview, as a lot of these the peace movements do, and um, create a political program rooted in national security. So if the Palestinians don't accept the peace deal, we will still draw our final border. That will be our border. These people are in. Those people are out. You're more than welcome to come in, but you can't. Depends who the people are. Depends whether they're Israelis, Palestinians, living where. 
precisely on what line. But at the end of the day, what people need to reckon with when it comes to national security, and this goes to Herzog's point, is I don't think Herzog is correct. Uh, Herzog's playing politics. Israelis need to know what is the day after looking like because they need to know what their lives will be. October 7th was a shock to the entire country. No one thinks like it was October 6th, aside from the government. They still think it's October 6th, okay? But no one in the country does. Now, what I mean by this is that at the end of the day, a two-state solution is in the best long-term interest of the state of Israel. So the left would do well by explaining to the rest of the country why the two-state solution is in the best interest of the state of Israel, rather than lecturing Israelis about the Palestinians. Because the Palestinians are a problem for themselves. That's what I feel. My belief in a two-state solution is not out of any sort of gross sympathy for the Palestinians. It's because I believe in a Jewish democratic state and secure borders. And you can't have all three of those with one state with another five and a half million Palestinians inside it. That doesn't exist. So any sort of idea of a single state ruling over all of the territory should have died at 7 a.m. on October 7th. Anyone talking about that to me is totally delusional right now. The two-state solution, however, in the old paradigm is also delusional. So you have to find new paradigms, and I think that's through the region. But what I mean by we cannot avoid decisions on the Palestinian issue is not because of the Palestinians themselves. It's because if you look at what is the most important thing for Israelis now, which is no doubt security, 75% on on the morning of October 7th and before then, 75% of Israel's active military are deployed into the West Bank, leaving 25% to be spread across six other border fronts, three of which have genocidal terrorist jihadist lunatics on the other side. Think about that just rationally for a moment. Take away all the identities, the religious beliefs, all these things, just for a moment. Bear with me for a moment. 25% of our overall military spread across six border fronts. On the other side, genocidal terrorist lunatics who want to wipe out the state of Israel or kill all the other Jewish people, 75% in one area. That left our borders vulnerable, as we saw on October 7th. Now you've got 150,000 people evacuated from the north and the south. You want to keep that deployment of forces the same? How are you going to guarantee after October 7th to the 150,000 evacuated Israelis that they can safely move back to their houses in the north and in the south without redeploying your security forces? So at the end of the day, this is where the Israeli left forms their political program. Either the Haredim are permanently drafted into the military and will face imprisonment if they do not go, or Israel will remove the settlements and draw a new line. Not all the settlements. 85% of the settlers live in 4% of the West Bank. That's the main settlement blocks. But all the settlements that have extended out, these random outposts with roads that make absolutely no sense for security, they've got to go. Because at the end of the day, we don't have enough troops. And if you want to avoid October 7th happening again, you need to redeploy the troops. So either you're finding new, either you're finding an increase in in the military, which I don't see actually happening, or you're redrawing the lines. Netanyahu's talking about he'll never let security control be west of Jordan. 
He can't even give you an active political program for how he's returning the evacuees in the North and the South. And let me make myself clear why it's very important for the state of Israel to do that and to not be worried about the West Bank, which is not Israel's sovereign territory. You can kill every Hamasnik that exists on the planet, and you can kill everyone from Hezbollah that exists on the planet as well. But if Israel's borders shrink in the North and the South, then they won the war. Because that is the point. So unless you can return using a new security paradigm, people, those evacuees to the north and south, and rebuild those communities, you've lost the war. And you cannot do that with the current deployment of forces. So sacrifices will need to be made. Okay? My suggestion is that parts of the settlement movement go. It's a failed project. Okay? It has, contributes nothing to the state other than it drains the, the, the economy, lives off taxes, represents a financial burden to the country, and it essentially uh, starts putting tensions on the very idea of the democracy of the state, which I think, based on what we saw in the first nine months of October of 2023, leading up until October, a large portion of Israeli society, that's very important to them. So Herzog is right about that Israelis require security. He's wrong about that no one can think about it right now. It's all people are thinking about because they need to know, are they going to be able to move back to their homes? Where are their homes going to be? What are things going to look like? You've got essentially 150,000 people living, either being taken in by the kibbutzim or living in hotels, who for the most part were abandoned by the government. Okay, the government's got better over the last four months at helping support them. But if it wasn't for Israeli civil society, those people would have been homeless. So the government has no right, really, in my opinion, has no moral mandate to lecture the public on what the public should or shouldn't think. I think the public should start telling the government what it should do because they clearly, in my opinion, are amateurs. And um, there's a, clearly a limit when you look at the statements that come out. Look, I don't want to be crude about it, but there's clearly a limit to how many lunatics and idiots you can have in one Knesset, in one government. <laughs> I'm speechless. I can't, there's really nothing I can say to follow that up with other than thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for everything you're doing. Listeners, you want to subscribe to his Substack Israel from Within, bringing you discussions happening within Israel, debunking myths about the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, Israeli society, politics, history, and more. Yeah, more would be like more ideological, philosophical dimensions. I also speak about, you know, the diasporic conversation of anti-Zionism and particularly focusing on... I, this is this interesting thing with Islamists and progressives now, which I find quite fascinating. Uh, I think it's more that the progressives opened the door to the Islamists than the Islamists' predatory nature of playing on progressives. So that I also write about that in there, you know, stuff like that that's connected to Israel but outside of Israel. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. And our biggest hopes for brighter days ahead. I, I just, I while you were speaking before, I just wanted to like, Fast forward to the part where, please God, we see you speaking in front of the Knesset and just schooling everyone and your dream becoming, you know, a reality. That would be great. So 
maybe behind the scenes, maybe behind the scenes. I'm not sure you'd see me in the Knesset. I avoid, <laughs> I avoid government parliamentarians unless I am speaking to them behind the scenes. Put well, it that way. I really hope that you become a puppet master. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed our conversation and you want to stay connected, follow us on Instagram. Consider becoming a patron over on our Patreon or shoot us an email. Everything has the handle October 7th, the podcast. Our email is October 7th, the podcast at gmail.com. We even recently opened a YouTube channel. Hit subscribe over there. Send this to your friends. Tell all the people. (laughs) And if you're just joining us, we're two neighbors in South Tel Aviv who met for the first time on October 7th, sheltering at a mutual friend's place in the neighborhood. We started recording that night. Like our show name suggests, this is raw emotional coverage. We invite you to listen to episode zero, our disclaimer of sorts, and our special showreel, episode 21, jam-packed with carefully curated highlights from the first month, offering you the chance to discover anew our wild, unfiltered journey as we grapple with the complex emotions of living in Israel in the midst of the ongoing war. Episode 32 marks the start of what some loyal listeners have been referring to as season two, with interviews, with very special guests. All the links and information can be found in our show bio. Special thank you to Shema, your home for podcasts, Maya Schlesinger, Jonathan Gall, Dora Comet. I'm Amy Sapan. Thank you so much. Stay, stay safe, safe and, and stay, stay tuned. tuned. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's all. Okay.